Good morning, everybody. My freshman year of high school, I was um, in our church's youth group. There were about 12 of us. It was, it was small. Um, and it was a Methodist church. So our district superintendent asked if we would host a district youth event and, and plan it. And so, you know, this was a big deal for us. They said there'd be about 100 students there. And uh, so we decided that what we would do is um, kind of shock and challenge uh, this group of students. Um, and so the plan was this. We would start the, uh, the event in the sanctuary of our church. And it would be, you know, just kind of a normal type thing. And, um, but at the very beginning, as we were getting started, we would have the police come with sirens and flashing lights and uh, then come into the sanctuary and announce that this was now an illegal gathering, that you were no longer permitted to uh, gather to worship Jesus. And uh, we thought, you know, this is going to be really cool. And so I knew a friend of mine's dad was a uh, police officer in town. And uh, so I asked if he would do this. And I had this whole idea of, you know, he'd have like a scroll where he'd read out this, you know, edict from the government. And he said, no, he wouldn't do that. Um, but he did. He, he did decide that, uh, that he could come in and, and do a variation of that. And so we started and the sirens, you know, and the guys are all looking around. You could see the flashing lights uh, coming through the windows of that uh, sanctuary. And he came in and announced that we could no longer worship. And so, you know, it was initially kind of shocking. This, you know, kids figured it out pretty quickly that this was not a real thing. But it started this conversation about how committed are we to our faith? For those of you who have been around a while, you know that we have uh, developed a relationship with a church in Cuba, just outside of Havana. And I've been there three times, and each time I come away inspired and humbled because of the um, treatment that these folks get from their government. It's not as bad as it was 25, 30 years ago, but the government is still not happy about people gathered um, in the name of Christ and gathered together in groups to worship. The, the country is still officially atheist, and so they're not, they're not keen on this. And because they control everything, they can make life less comfortable for people who are active in their faith, particularly clergy. It is not unusual for a clergy person to be watched and listened to uh, by people, you know, what it is they're teaching and preaching and so forth. And if anything happens that makes government officials uncomfortable in any way, they will come and shut down that church. They'll confiscate the property. They'll confiscate the pastor's house and throw him in jail. And they live with that every day. Now, Cuba is by no means the worst country when it comes to this kind of repressive behavior toward the Christian church in the world. There are over 50 countries 
where it is far worse, beginning with North Korea and Afghanistan and the Sudan and, and other countries that it is dangerous to be a Christian and to gather together in places like we are here to grow in your faith. And it makes me wonder if I lived in a country like that, what effect it would have on me in terms of my involvement in church and in terms of my faith in Christ. So that's what was going on in the first century as well. That it was illegal to be a follower of Christ and it was dangerous. And powerful uh, organizations like the Roman government and uh, the Jewish council were opposed to this emerging church referred to as the way. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Like, why do they feel so threatened? Why do they feel so threatened by a faith that is about forgiveness and reconciliation and love for everyone, including your enemy? What is so threatening that rulers, dictators, kings feel so threatened that they commit violence against people of that kind of faith. Well, from a human perspective, of course, in the first century, I, I get it. The Jewish council was threatened because the church, the, the followers of Christ, understood that a new era had begun, that the covenant made with Abraham and Moses with all of its sacrificial systems and temple and so forth, were no longer necessary. That which they had learned and developed their life and their culture around was no longer necessary. A new covenant in Christ, the Messiah, had been born. It was predicted, it was expected, but I guess not really. Because when Jesus came as the Messiah, he was rejected by many. And so they were threatened by this, and they wanted to destroy this growing gathering of Christ followers. Rome was threatened because they, they didn't uh, accept any notion of a king other than Caesar. So when they're talking about Jesus as their king, as their leader, Rome is not good with that. When they pledged their allegiance to a different empire than the Roman Empire, they were pledging their allegiance to the kingdom of God. Rome was not good with that. And so it's in that context that the church existed. And I wonder... For myself, what would it be like to be in that context? How would that affect my involvement with a community of faith and my own relationship with Jesus Christ? 
But Paul, in this letter, said that there was a different power at work beyond those worldly powers. So we've been looking at this letter um, that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus over the last six weeks and talking about what it means to be the church, to be the gathered followers of Christ, what we're supposed to be about and what we're supposed to avoid and who we are as followers of Christ together in community. And so we're wrapping that up this week, and he's giving this kind of final warning, if you will, and exhortation about why it's so hard. Why is it so hard? Now, we don't face the kind of struggles that Paul faced. We don't face the kind of struggles that our friends in Cuba face or in those other countries. We don't face a hostile government with threats of violence because of our faith. We kind of face um, more of an apathy. I mean, there are those who are opposed to the church in our culture, in our country. There are those who, you know, reject it and are vocal about it and so forth. But I think by and large, people are pretty apathetic about the church. It doesn't matter. It's insignificant. It's irrelevant. And in some ways, that is even more difficult a challenge for us to live in that kind of culture because we begin to reflect it. Like, eh, church, you know, maybe, who cares? Doesn't matter. Why is it so difficult? Why is it so hard? So, we just heard it read uh, beautifully by, by Marshall in playing the part of Paul, writing that letter. So we heard the words. I want to go through this section of chapter 6 again as we prepare to receive communion. And so I want us to read it together. I want you to not only hear the words, um, but to, to see them, to hear others read them out loud and to add your voice to that. So let's read Romans 6, beginning with verse 10 together. Here we go. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategy of the devil. So Paul is saying here that the fight really isn't against the Jewish council. The fight isn't really against the Roman government or the Roman empire. That there are these dark forces, these spirits of evil opposed to God's will and God's way that are at work against us. This is a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual struggle as much as it is anything else. And it is those forces of evil that are at work against the people of God, against the church, 
and have always been. And so in some ways, it doesn't matter the context of the culture that we find ourselves in. These forces are still at work trying to undermine what the church is called to do and to be about. These spiritual forces of evil. These demonic forces. Now, I don't know how you feel about that or what you think about that. But I have come to understand both through scripture and through experience, that this is a reality, that there are spiritual forces at work in the world, even as there are other kinds of forces as well. Now, Paul doesn't dwell on this. He talks about it in other writings as well, other letters that he wrote. He talks about spiritual conflict and, and uh, forces of evil and so forth, but it's not a central teaching to him. It's not a central theme, not because he doesn't believe it or he's embarrassed to, to talk about it, but because he recognized that when the church is doing what the church is supposed to do, that when believers are walking the way that they're supposed to be walking, doing the things that we're supposed to be doing, that we don't need to fear those forces that we have a power at work in us greater than those forces of evil at work in the world. In fact, Scripture says that greater is he who is in us, the Holy Spirit, than he who is in the world, the evil one. So it's not a central focus, but he wants us to be aware. Part of the reason it's so hard Part of, the reason, part of the thing that we struggle with and deal with is the thing that we don't see. It's this kind of evil at work around us to undermine what the church is to be about. So Paul says, all right, so that's a reality. We have this, we're in this spiritual warfare but we don't have to worry because we have tools to combat the evil forces around us. And that's what he writes about next. And he talks about it using the illustration of a Roman soldier's outfit that he would wear going into battle. So he talks about it in terms of these pieces of armor that a soldier, soldier would wear when going into battle and compares it to spiritual tools that we have available to us. All right, so that's what's next. Let's read that together. It begins with verse 13, and uh, we'll read through to verse 18. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy. Then after the Good job. 
Seven pieces of armor, he notes. Okay? He says, here are these seven pieces of armor that will give you protection against the plans of evil. Now remember, uh, in this letter, Paul is writing to the church. And so when he, when you see the word you in this letter, it's the plural. He's not just talking to individuals, he's talking to the church. So he's saying, y'all ought to be doing this. All of you, all of us, together, we should be putting on these pieces of armor. So as individuals, we need to be a Uh, paying attention to this, but also as a community of faith, we need to be paying attention to this. We need to put on the full armor of God. The first one is truth. He talks about putting on truth. Now, Jesus said of himself, I am the truth. Remember, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth. So when we read about Jesus, when we read of Jesus, um, what he said and what he did in the Gospels, we are reading the truth of God. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know how God acts and reacts, how God thinks, what God values, read the Gospels and in The story of Jesus, we see the truth about God. We don't have to wonder about God. We can read about God through the Gospels and how Jesus lived his life. He is the truth. Next, it talks about righteousness, right? This isn't a self-righteousness. This isn't about, you know, this kind of uh, holier-than-thou kind of idea. It is rightness. When we rightly apply the truth of the gospel to our lives, we are living right. We are moving in the right way. We are going in the right direction. That's the nature of righteousness, that our lives are aligned with the will and purpose of God. And so we live a right life as we follow Christ. And then he talks about peace, right? That we can have, uh, we can walk in the way of peace. And it's this idea of tranquility regardless of the circumstances of life going on around you. Now we all know that life can get chaotic. Life can be hard. Life can be confusing. Life can be hurtful, but we can have, you can have a deep sense of tranquility as you are putting your faith in the truth and walking in the right ways that you can have this deep sense of tranquility even in the worst of circumstances. Do you feel peace today? Are you at peace even if your circumstances right now may not be peaceful. We have this promise of peace. Faith and salvation, these things that tether us to God, faith. It's a shield, Paul said, putting our trust into Christ. We all put our faith in something, right? We either do it by design or by default. You put your faith in something. 
as followers of Christ, we're called to put our faith into Christ. Now, this doesn't free us from doubt. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is apathy. And I think really that's, that's the biggest challenge in our culture. There is this kind of apathy around things of faith. People don't think about it all that deeply. But we are called to be people of faith. And when you have doubt, because we all do, when those times of confusion, like how does, why is this happening? How come this is this way? And why isn't that happening? And, and we're struggling with our faith. That's not a sign of a lack of faith. That's a time for deepening our faith. Uh, some of you may uh, remember the Shakels. Uh, Earl and Julie Shakel were a part of this community of faith for about 15 years. Uh, they retired about four or five years ago and moved out of the area. Um, and Julie was, uh, both were active here. Julie was part of our lead team for a number of years. She was active in our small group ministry. Um, Julie passed away yesterday at 57 years old. Uh, of a, a kind of a rare type of cancer. She knew um, about a month ago that, that um, her time on earth was short. So she sent a, a note to my wife, Marilyn. They had been in a small group together. And she said, you know, I'm so grateful that you led us in that study of the book of Esther. She said, as we were going through the study, you may, you may not recall this, she said, but one of the topics that came up was this idea of how confident are we about life beyond this life? That we can know that there is an eternal life and that we can have the hope and the promise of that through Christ. And she said, you know... I realized in that study that I didn't have that kind of confidence, that I was really afraid of dying. And so she struggled with that over the next couple of weeks, maybe months, of trying to come to terms with, what do I really believe? What do I really know? Do I really have this confidence that there is a life to come? And she said, in that struggle, in the midst of that, I came to a deeper faith where I really had this confidence about what happens beyond this life. And she said, I just want to thank you for that. You see, her doubt, her struggle, wasn't a lack of faith. It was an opportunity for her faith to grow deeper and stronger. That's why we encourage people to get involved in these small groups where you can have these kinds of conversations about your insights and your struggles and your doubts and talk to other people who may have been through the same thing, may be in the midst of the same thing, may have learned some things, so we can support each other in our faith development. The good news is that Julie's faith was strong and she is now with Christ in heaven forever. So we have this shield of faith. 
We have the word, both the written word in scripture, but also the living word in Jesus that is our sword. And then finally, he calls us to prayer. It's a genuine prayer where we're, we're not just reciting words mindlessly to God, but that we are opening our minds and hearts to God and talking to God about what's going on in our lives. Our struggles, our doubts, our hopes, our dreams. We're lifting up the needs of others around us. Prayer calls us out of just our own world and, and to be concerned for and, and interested in the needs and struggles of others, right? We do that for each other as a community of faith. We pray for each other. We pray for this community of faith that God would do good and great things in us and through us for the sake of others. So life is hard, right? Life can be hard. Why is church hard? Why is it difficult? Because we have spiritual forces opposed to us. The question is, how committed are we to the battle, to the struggle? Erwin McManus, pastor in California and an author, recently wrote a book called The Way of the Warrior. And I want to end with this quote from that book. McManus wrote, the warrior knows that honor is not found in the victory. Honor is found in the nobility of the battle. If the battle is not worthy of the warrior's life, there is no honor in its victory. So yeah, life can be hard. The battle can be challenging. But are the battles that you are in worthy of your life? Are the battles that you are in worthy of your life? This battle that ultimately cost Paul his life was worthy of his life. And he recognized that. Paul said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It defined his life. And it was a worthy, noble battle. That's the kind of life I want to live. That's the kind of life that we're called to live as followers of Christ. This battle also cost Jesus his life. That's why he came, to give his life as a ransom for us, that through him we might find forgiveness for sin, a new life, and the promise of an eternal life.